Now, I assume you like the work that went into that video, but Rock Me Tonight was a video that you were somewhat dissatisfied with. Is that true? Well, I think that in the end it, it possibly created a false impression of what, of what the band was about. Because what we tried to do so much before him was present sort of a documentary performance video, whether it was... Um, Everybody Wants You or the earlier stuff. It was really, I'm, I'm a believer in showing the band in performance. That's, I think that ultimately I want, I want a video to show the audience what the band is about and, not, and let the music be what it is. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not really a conceptualist. So, and, so, so I think in that way, by, we were in a period where we'd done a lot of these and got this idea, well, oh, maybe we should do something different. You know, maybe you know, just to, to experiment a little bit. And I think in that way, I don't think that it was ultimately as satisfying as just having the band do it, what we do best. All right, welcome to episode right. 31 of CFX, entitled, Whatever Happened to Billy Squire? Uh, welcome, everybody. I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. Hello, hello. That's so funny, his quote with uh, that interview with Alan Hunter. It's like the understatement of the year. Yeah. yeah, we just want to do something different, you know. <laughs> uh, but but by the way, I sued the guy who directed the video. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. It's it's this is one uh, you know I wanted to do because there's a lot going around the internet about this whole you know idea that this one video destroyed this guy's career. Um, I think we're going to debate that a little bit. Yeah. And we're going to definitely talk about that video a lot. But we'll also talk about the fact that, you know, one thing that struck me when I looked into this is I was shocked. Um, like you were with Donna Summer. Same thing, right? You were shocked by how fucking popular she was. I was shocked by how big he was. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, like we'll go into the history of his records and stuff. But for a short period of time, he was like pretty damn popular. He, his records were like uh, multi-platinum. Yeah. And I always thought of him as a quasi one hit wonder which isn't true he had more obviously he had rock me tonight was actually his biggest hit but i always thought of the stroke as like this one hit novelty song but it's actually not true right yeah. i mean he had tons of radio hits and i remember him being all over the place uh, back but we, then. before we get into all that we need to remind people right that uh cfx uh, cultural futures exchange is a place where we examine different elements of cultural ephemera uh, music today movies tv stage screen you name it we cover it and we do a thing where we uh, kind of evaluate the context and time that came out what's happened since and our take on the future valuation in terms of should you go long buy it go short sell or stay neutral in a kind of fake stock market sort of way and that's what we do here and yeah billy squire as you said probably more popular sales wise than most people imagine 
Um, why don't you take us away and talk about your personal history and how you came to know Mr. Squire and his wares? Yeah, it's funny because when I looked into this, I was really thinking of Billy Squire as just part of this genre. And we'll talk more about like that in the um, zeitgeist section that will follow our personal histories. But the idea is, you know, this this kind of album oriented rock that's very keyboard centric yeah. was just really all about this era, you know, 1981. And we'll talk about other bands like Loverboy that are absolutely in the same kind of genre. Um, and I remember this was what I liked, you know, like around 1980, 1981, I was fully into FM radio. We talked about AM gold, um, which again, the stroke kind of is both. Right. Um, but we talked about the, the AM gold and we talked about how both of us kind of we're listening to AM radio a little bit. Then we quickly transitioned to classic rock and stuff like that. And I was listening to like Led Zeppelin and stuff, but on the radio was a lot of this kind of music. And I remember hearing the stroke and I loved it. I thought it was amazing. You know, when I was like 12 years old and I immediately went and bought the 45, yeah. which I did occasionally buy 45s. Most of the time I was buying records, but if I had a little money plus with Billy Squire, who knew, you know, if the rest of the album was going to be good, they were just playing that at first. And then they started playing the other uh, songs and uh, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll get to this, but I eventually did acquire a copy of it, but it would only be later, much years later. But, but I just remember hearing lonely is the night uh, in the dark, my kind of lover, uh, the stroke, you know, all these songs. Um, and I really like the stroke. Uh, I just love the riff and the kind of, glammy kind of sing-along uh nature of it I, you know i never i didn't know what uh gary glitter's rock and roll number three was at the time but that is exactly the kind of music the stroke is i mean when i think of the stroke i think of like okay we're switching innings at the ballpark and you know let's yeah, get the yeah. crowd riled up <laughs> you know yeah. let's play the stroke that's exactly like they you know they play that dan and and that hey you know rock yeah. number three uh that is the same as the stroke the stroke is fits that bill um and the album cover was pretty iconic too i remember seeing that everywhere at the time too with him sitting with the guitar and all that too right yeah i mean and i took it for granted like because i remember all of this music i was just listening to like you know Turn Me Loose by Loverboy and, uh, you know, The Stroke. This is all like, uh, you know, Ario Speedwagon. This was all like 1981, you know, FM gold. And But I just took for granted how fucking popular he was. Like, and we'll find out in the history how many albums he sold and all that. Um, but it's funny because I quickly grew out of this phase, you know, and I got more into kind of critically acclaimed stuff. You know, I discovered Dark Side of the Moon. It's funny because I bought Dark Side of the Moon and Foreigner 4 on the same day. Uh, and I listened to Foreigner 4. I've probably told this story many times on this podcast, and I'll tell it again, you know, as soon as we get to Pink Floyd or Foreigner. But uh, I listened to Foreigner 4 like once or twice, and I just couldn't stop listening to Dark Side of the Moon. So I kind of quickly had contempt for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was funny. I was hanging out with my friend Joe, and we were both getting into stuff like Hendrix. We were already into Led Zeppelin for years, but we were getting into like Hendrix and, you know, The Who and, you know, the old classic rock. And I remember one New Year's Eve, we were kind of hanging out and, uh, I had the 45 and we decided to see what, uh, you know, uh, fire would do to a 45 record, um, <laughs> and burned it and melted it. And it kind of became this warped relief. It was really gross. We got it all over that, all over the room. And it was really a pain to clean up, but that was like my trajectory. Of course, I remember MTV and being all over MTV. He was yeah. on it really early on. He did, you know, he, he started in 81 MTV started around then. And, um, you know, of course I remember, uh, 
everybody wants you. By the time Rock Me Tonight came out and, you know, we'll talk about whether it was a big deal at the time or not. Um, I didn't care for him or whatever. It was just another video. And, you know, as Jeff is probably going to mention, maybe it didn't stand out so much. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. But, but I just don't have any memory of thinking this video was anything, you know, worse than anything else that was on MTV at the time. You know, I don't remember this being a big deal. But then again, I didn't really care about Billy Squire at this point. I was completely into like Prince and stuff like that. It's weird. Prince could be in when doves cry in a fucking bathtub shirtless. But if Billy Squire had done that, it'd be even worse than Robbie tonight, right? It's yeah. like some people could get away with this shit based on their I'll fan talk base. about why I think that is, by the way, when we get into that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, Jim, big part of Jeff is Jeff is going to do another deep dive on, on this video. And we're going to talk about it extensively and each have our opinion on it. Um, now, so, so I just want to mention that, but um, the funny thing is when I started getting into rap, I had no idea that this one song, the big beat, which I had never heard before researching this podcast, except I had heard it a million times and didn't know it. This beat in the big beat, which is Billy Squire's first single from his first album, tale of the tape, which no one bought. Uh, except for a bunch of uh, budding DJs, I guess, because it's one of the most sampled beats ever. Um, and I'll play a little uh, example of that. But I was I was really into this group, Tribe Called Quest. I still love them. They're one of my favorite rap groups, uh, hip hop groups. Um, and I remember, and they sampled this. So, so I mean, I was listening to this big beat with, you know, listening to Run DMC and all these bands I was kind of getting into in the late 80s, early 90s. I just didn't know I was listening to Billy Squire. You know, I had no idea. Um and then later, much later, you know, of course, I was record shopping and I saw like a three dollar copy of In the Dark and I bought it. And I'm actually was really surprised by how freaking good this album is. Like, it's mostly good. There is a couple of real clunkers toward the end. It really peters out. But the first side of this album is pretty much, you know, just complete great FM rock, you know, and it's like, as we mentioned, all those songs only is the night in the dark by kind of lover. They're all on this record. And they're all pretty good, you know, as far as being catch and the stroke, of course. So I was like, I was like, this is pretty good. And so when doing this podcast, I listened to bits and pieces of his other discography. I listened to all of um, Emotions and Motions, all of Signs of Life. Nothing touches this first album. Like, I'll just say that right off the bat. And I think that's it's pretty good. But I was actually surprised to find out that it, I liked it. And it was one of the reasons I wanted to do this because I'm like, let me dive into his other stuff. Let's see how good this stuff is. And uh, we'll we'll get to the answer in the evals. But, um, you know, I think In the Dark really stands out. Obviously, that was kind of his early peak. Um, and then, you know, of course, as I mentioned, we'll talk about this in the history. But I was really surprised by his album sales. You know, the, the first the first three albums uh, are not first three, but this, the second, third and fourth album are quite big sellers. So anyway, Jeff, let's I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, I mostly heard the the hits on AOR radio, like you were describing. I, I've never owned any of his albums. Um, I certainly remember seeing uh, in the dark the the album in a lot of places, including um, I had a, a a babysitter. You know, one of the you know like sixteen or seventeen year old girl. I was about ten when this album came out. Um, yeah, I was ten, I think, and she had it pretty soon after. It was it was a big hit almost instantly, you know, it was getting played a lot. And I remember the album cover with him sitting there with the guitar and it was kind of an iconic thing. And she was really into him and played this album a lot. Um, even at our house, when she would come over, uh, she brought some albums and stuff because she knew I liked music and would play stuff. And I remember her playing this and I liked it. You know, I liked it. All those hits you mentioned, you know, stroke me and lonely is a night and all those things. Um, 
And yeah, I, I thought it was fine. I was never really into him. I remember seeing him on MTV, um, you know, with his hair and all that, uh, which kind of looked like my hair, you know, a bit too. Uh, and, but, I, <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> uh, but I, but I never, I never really owned, you know, I never really even desired to buy, to buy his albums. Uh, they were fine. I was more into foreigner and I kind of put him and in the same category, as you mentioned, like with Loverboy, who, you know, of course had iconic popular songs at the time, but I never owned a Loverboy album. Um, what was the one, the name of the album with him on the cover with the headband with his hand behind with the crossed fingers. What was the, it's their biggest album. What's the name? Uh, Get, of that? Lucky. Get, Get Lucky. Lucky. Yeah, Get Lucky. Yeah. Get Lucky. Yeah. That was the second album. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that album was everywhere at the time when it came out too. And I never really desired to buy it, but the songs were okay. It just wasn't my, wasn't my thing at the time. It was, it was fine. So, um, he never really made much of an impression on me. I didn't really know much about the controversy of this video, honestly, at all. Um, just because I didn't follow him that uh, carefully and sort of doing the research for this podcast, you know, your idea to look into this. It's not at all surprising what happened and how, and, and we'll get into all that. But uh, this video, I maybe had seen it, but it certainly didn't make any sort of impression on me um, until we started really looking at this for the, for the episode. So why don't you talk a little bit about the, the zeitgeist of this? Uh, a so bit before more. I do that, there was something I kind of was thinking about too that was funny to me, you know, yeah, maybe I like stroke me so much or the stroke because, you know, I was 12 years old and maybe I liked the fact that he was writing a song about one of my new uh, hobbies. personal hobbies, <laughs> you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Cause yeah. I was the right. Could age be. For that. Maybe that's why it was so popular. Yeah. 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 We'll talk about his whole image too, because I mean, that, that really plays into the video because he talks about his image and I don't necessarily agree with him that it was so out of character for him to parade around like that on the video, but we'll get to that. So zeitgeist. So the funny thing is in researching this, you know, I was trying to find out, well, what did he like? What did he listen to growing up? You know, he, he, he was actually not super young uh, when he first broke uh, big, he was 31. So he had yeah. been playing in bands and stuff, you know, uh, for, for quite a while in the seventies and stuff. And so I thought, well, what, you know, especially since his music was so of the time and it ha was so keyboard dominated, like what was he actually listening to? The funny thing is his favorite thing is like Eric Clapton and like blues and cream. And you hmm. don't really hear a lot of that in his music. I mean, later he would make an album called like uh, happy blue. I think I have it listed in the history. I don't, I didn't remember the name, but it's like, you know, he, he, he turned stroke into like an, it's like a unplugged kind of thing that he released in the late nineties. And he, he did like stroke me blues. And when you see him play, he'll play like this old kind of bluesy shit. He's not a bad guitarist no, at, all. Not at all. He's totally decent. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, that's what he was really influenced by. But what I heard a lot in him is Led Zeppelin. You know, you, you hear the big drums, uh, you know, especially on lonely is the night is like, it's almost a precursor to White Snake's ripoff of uh, uh, Led Zeppelin in the still of the night, yeah, right? I Which is a complete Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So I hear a yeah. lot of Zeppelin because I hear the drums, even the big beat. It's almost a Bonamy beat, you yeah. know, and and he's got a little bit of that kind That's of screaming. Plant. Yeah. 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 I think he's definitely in. in he was almost like. I almost wonder what Led Zeppelin would have done in the eighties. If you listen to some of the stuff in, in through the outdoor, it's a lot more keyboardy. I almost yeah. wonder if it would have sounded like this. I mean, even Robert Plant, like pictures at 11, isn't that different from what Billy Squire was doing? True. And I think, I think, uh, 
Led Zeppelin is one of the big influences, although he doesn't really call them out. You know, he, I get a general sense from reading interviews that he's just into the Beatles and into all classic rock. And that's what he grew up with. But Cream and Eric Clapton was a big one. And it's really one of the least things I hear in his music. Um, now, what I hear in the music mostly is the other stuff that was going on at the time. I mean, it was right in the pocket of what was, you know, super popular on FM radio. I'm talking about Journey, you know, Foreigner. Yeah. Uh, uh, Loverboy really comes to mind because they were also new. And all of these bands were heavily using synthesizers and keyboards as like the, you know, they're guitar dominated, but there's a lot of keyboards. I mean, think about Urgent, you know, yeah. I mean, that's not that different from what he was doing. I mean, some of his stuff's heavier and some of it isn't, you know, you list like, like to me, um, you know, everybody wants you is almost like new wave. You know, it's got that herky jerky thing, even though his vocals are kind of completely like Lou Graham esque and Robert Plant esque. Well, you the, know, so the initial riff, of, da 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 da, yeah. that, that, that's very new wavy to me. Yeah, yeah. It's like herky jerky, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. it's funny because I was watching live clips of him and he has this bassist, and me and my wife were watching him, and, and he's got this kind of Almost like he almost looks like a member of the Stray Cats or like oh, yeah. the attraction. It looks like Slim Jim, whatever yeah. that guy's name is. Yeah, he he Phantoms could be in the, with, he could he could have been in Phantom, he could have yeah. been in like Squeeze or the attractions oh, totally. or totally. you know like like the rockabilly bands. And it was just yeah. so funny because I'm like, yeah, a lot of times the bass player or keyboardist would look like that in these AOR bands. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I thought yeah, it was they, like the Stray Cats guy too. I was like, is that the same dude? No. Yeah, yeah. that would be hilarious. Yeah, that guy actually has um. I think that, oh no, that maybe it's Leroy. I, I, yeah, Slim Jim Phantom, right? He has a show on um, Underground Garage on Sirius. It's really all this rockabilly stuff. So yeah. he would not play this kind of music ever. He would have probably been repulsed by this shit. You know, he's such a rockabilly guy. But anyway, so, so yeah, so that's like Boston, Loverboy, Heart is another one. Sure. Uh, Pat Benatar that we mentioned. I mean, there's a little bit of that, you know, we mentioned a little bit of that new wave, and Pat Benatar had a little, a few touches of that. And then, of course, Power Pop, because there are a couple of songs uh, that he does that are kind of more, you know, he treads the line between like power, like pop and hard rock. I mean, I think the stroke has elements of like kind of just AM radio gold, you know? And, um, I, I always put the cars just because the cars are one of those bands that were heavily new wave, but they were played the, really a lot on FM radio. You know, they sure. kind of crossed over pretenders too a little bit, although and they had ballads too, that. like drive and that kind of stuff. too. That's true. That's yeah. true. Um, and then I mentioned everybody wants you could be, you know, by the fix or Wang Chung, you know, it's got that. I mean, obviously the vocals are different, but the music could be, if you just gave the guy a little more of a, a cold Bowie-esque vocal, you could do some weird version of that that would still work. And then uh, also technology, right? He's using a lot of synthesizers. You know, there's a lot of effects on the drums that almost sound like a drum machine sometimes, even though it's a guy playing. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that's all I have to say about him in that era. And obviously MTV we mentioned, but I don't know if yeah. there's anything else you wanted to bring up. No, I, I think you, you covered a lot of the bands that kind of evoked the same thing for me. Um, you know, I think you also mentioned Boston, you know, the, the keyboards there, integral part of their sound, especially on their big hits, like Long Time and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, no, so let's talk about the, uh, the history of uh, Mr. Squire and where he came from and the background and all that. I think uh, then we'll get into uh, the usual stuff here. So tell us about that. Right. So he was born William Hayslip Squire on May 12, 1950 in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Yeah, which which I noted here 
is a is a very wealthy suburb of Boston. It's where uh, Wellesley College is famous. Oh yeah, I thought so, it sounded. I thought I remembered yeah, there being a um, school there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really high rent area. It's very nice. I've actually been there, uh, driven through there. Yeah, it's, it's uh, beautiful. Lots of leafy, uh, you know, avenues and you know, big houses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it doesn't really mention he must have been kind of a rich kid, or maybe he was on the wrong side of the Wellesley tracks. Who knows? Yeah. But at any rate, he I think you that's know, he tick, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> it's yeah. a different town. Oh, okay. Uh so he he you know, he played piano like a lot of kids, piano lessons. Uh, I think his grandfather taught him piano, I read, and then he played guitar, but he really didn't get serious about music until he heard the blues breakers, which we of course mentioned in our Fleetwood Mac episode because of John McBee and uh Mick Fleetwood's uh participation in that group. Um again, I hear very little of that in his music that he would eventually become known for. But he was in a bunch of uh bands. His first band was called the Reltneys. They were formed when he was 14. So he was, you know, that was like kind of maybe a Beatlesque band. And then eventually he started playing in a band called Magic Terry and the Universe in uh-huh. the late 60s. Well, it's a classic name. And maybe he ran into Donna Summer in uh Boston. He played at a, a club called the Psychedelic Supermarket. Um, he actually saw Cream there as well. Um, he later tried out for a band called the kicks, which is, you know, this small local band that was mainly known for having, uh, Jerry Nolan, the drummer of the, uh, New York dolls in it for a while. Uh, in 1970, he briefly attended the Berkeley college of music, um, with the original intention of becoming a teacher or music Mm. teacher, but he didn't like it because, you know, basically he when he would play stuff they'd say well you didn't play it the way we wanted you to play it so billy squire's like that's not you know in some interview he's all that's not what billy squire's about like in the third person (laughs) um so he left and he joined another band called the sidewinders they had had a debut album um they were this was all part of the same scene that aerosmith was in in massachusetts so um he um uh and even the modern lovers which is a very different band from either of those uh you know, in the early seventies, Boston, but he, the album, they had had an album before Billy Squire joined that was produced by Lenny Kay would later be of Patti Smith name. So it's kind of interesting. It's like similar to kiss where he's kind of intermingling with these proto punk artists, but it's not really, he's not really part of the scene. Um, and then he eventually got his first big break by joining a band called Piper. They were formed in 1975. Um, and they released an album in 76 that Circus Magazine at the time called The Greatest Debut Ever Produced by a U.S. Rock Band. And I've wow. listened to it on Spotify, and I can tell you this is not a fact. Um, <laughs> it is not that good. It's it's kind of power poppy. It's very much like cheap trick light um, without really any standout tracks. Um you know, and he was guitarist and singer in that band. Um, they released two albums, Piper in 76 and Can't Wait in 77. Um, and they did, you know, manage to get a minor following locally, uh, but they never really made an impact. Their most notable thing they did was actually they were managed by Bill Coin uh, of Kiss fame. And they opened for Kiss in 1977, including two sold out shows at uh, Madison Square Garden. So interesting. But none of this really did anything uh, to break them. And they kind of petered out. And then in 79, Squire got a deal with Capitol Records. Um, and. Then then we kind of start with his, um, you know, output, you know, his album output. He released his first album, The Tale of the Tape, in May of 1980. It did nothing. It charted uh, 169. It had two signals, The Big Beat and You Should Be High Love. 
Um, again, I mentioned I never heard this directly, but the big beat was obviously the tail of the tape was bought by some, uh, you know, early rap DJs and used extensively in hip hop because of the beat. Um, but it didn't really charge. There's a video for it. And it's kind of a goofy video where he's out on the street. He's doing some great dancing, as we'll talk about that he often did. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's like a reel to reel tape that's kind of rolling down the stairs and it's really dumb. But at any rate, it didn't do anything. Right. So um, then he uh, wanted to get his next album produced and he struck up a friendship with Queen. I think he'd open for them. Um, and he wanted to get Brian May of Queen to uh, produce his album. And as I'll mention in the future, Queen, uh, various members of Queen worked on his albums uh, over the years because they were they were all friendly. Um, but Brian May couldn't do it. He was busy. So he referred Squire to this guy, Reinhold Mack, who had just produced Queen the Game. And that's another thing we should mention is Queen the Game kind of. There's definitely some Queen in in uh, Billy Squire that I forgot to mention during the zeitgeist. I mean. For one thing, Queen played in all kinds of different genres. Right? They do a lot of kind of progressive rock, heavy rock, and then they have even kind of disco songs, like another one, uh, Bites the Dust. I almost said another one, Rides the Bus. Um, another one, <laughs> Bites the Dust. Um, no, no harm there. Yeah, yeah I know. We'll get to that later. Much, you know, uh, That's another episode for sure. But but I could see him kind of, some of his songs, he kind of treaded into that dancey thing a little bit too, like Queen. Um and Don't Say No was really successful. Um, it was played a lot on early MTV, um, and it hit number five in the U.S., number four in Canada. It was three times platinum in the U.S., and platinum in Canada. It was on the charts for over two years, and it had a big single in the stroke. It made number 17 on the charts. Um, number seven in Canada It was also uh, charted in Australia. And it was number three on this U.S. AOR chart. So I'm going to be talking about this AOR chart a lot because Billy Squire, again, is more of an FM guy. He had a few singles that charted, uh, you know, but most of the singles didn't chart really high, but they were they were on this U.S. AOR chart. And I'm going to also talk about how I think this chart is kind of bullshit because, yeah, U.S. AOR uh, number three, The Stroke, that makes sense. But as we get to his later albums, you'll see he charts really high on this chart. And it and I don't know any of these songs. I never heard them in my life. So I, I'm skeptical as to how this chart was created. It's a billboard chart. Um, but at any rate, he had more FM radio hits uh, in the dark. The title cut was actually another another top 40 single at number 35. Um, but it was number seven on the AOR chart. Lonely is the Night wasn't a single. Um, but it was number 28 on the AOR chart. And My Kind of Lover was another single that actually uh, didn't chart very high on AOR, number 31, but it was a number 45 US hit. So he he was quite popular at this time. There is a live concert you can watch on YouTube called In the Dark Live DVD. It was recorded at Santa Monica Civic Center. Um, the, the, the one I actually clipped at the beginning of the stroke was from 1982 in Detroit. Uh, that one's pretty interesting, too. That's the Emotions in Motion tour, and the sound quality isn't great, but you could hear how popular. I wanted to, to play that because you could hear how popular he was. That's a big crowd singing back to him in that call and response part of the stroke. And in at the Santa Monica Civic Center, I mean, it's a pretty big venue. Yeah. And, um, you know, he wasn't playing stadiums or anything, you know, but he was playing pretty good-sized theaters. It's about 2,000 people, <clears throat> 1,500, 2,000 people, I think. Yeah, and it, he's pretty much headlining there. I mean, he would open for Queen, as I'll mention. And, you know, he never was that big of a headliner, but he did play some pretty big shows. Um, he 
okay, so one thing we should mention too is you can find this on YouTube. So in 1980, early 1981, of course, he dominated on MTV or late 1981, because MTV started in August of 1981, uh, there was this Christmas song he created called Christmas is the Time to Say I Love You. And you can watch a video of him singing with Martha Quinn and J.J. Johnson or, you know, Alan Hunter, all the all the DJs, Mark VJs, Mark Goodman, along with the MTV crew. And it's like kind of this thing that MTV played and they were pretty into him and and he was popular there. Uh, he followed up In the Dark with Emotions and Motions, released a year later, July 1982. Again, it was uh, double platinum this time, uh, number five in the US, number eight in Canada. Um, interestingly enough, the cover art was done by Andy Warhol. Um, and uh, he had just talked to Andy Warhol and just asked him, and Andy Warhol said, sure, what colors do you like? And he just made him that cover. Uh, the biggest single was uh, Everybody Wants You, it was only number 32 in the US, number 26 in Canada, but it was number one on this AOR chart, right? And this uh, song and album features backing vocals by Freddie Mercury and Roger Taylor of Queen, as I mentioned. Um, and this song was actually number one on the AOR chart for six weeks. So it was quite a big radio hit. And I remember hearing this all the fucking time. Uh, he had other FM radio hits, uh, uh, Emotions in Motion, the title cut, uh, again, not a, not a, didn't make the top 40, but was on this AOR chart. Learn how to live. This is actually a pretty good one. I remember listening to this uh, just recently, listening to the album, and I thought this one stood out. Um, number 15, USAOR. Keep me satisfied. She's a runner. So, you know, he wasn't getting the big singles like The Stroke, but he was still being played on the radio a lot, right? And then in 1983, he was a headliner. And he, uh, a little band called Def Leppard opened up for him. And mm. this was when Pyromania came out. So this was kind of the first to break Pyromania. Um, and so that was kind of significant. Um, he took a while to, re to record his next album. He originally wanted to work with Robert Mutt Lang, uh, but he was- Who didn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah. At that point, especially after Pyromania. And of course, you know, we should get Back in Black, one of the right. biggest albums of all time, right? I mean, he was the producer of the times. Uh, and he would be even more so with Hysteria, uh, which was one of the biggest albums of the whole decade. Uh, but he, he managed to get a real has-been, uh, Jim Steinman, who had produced uh, one of the even bigger albums of all time, Bat, Bat Out of Hell. Uh, and this is a, it's funny because this doesn't really sound like Meatloaf at all. It's very, very 80s. I mean, it's a, it's a, this album is 80s-itis written all over it. It was released in July of 1984, it was another pretty big album. It wasn't, again, his sales kept kind of going down, as you can see. It was three times platinum, then two. Now we're at one times platinum and only gold in Canada. But it made number 11 in the U.S., number 42 Canada. Um, and, you know, of course, he his first single, um, Rock Me Tonight, was a really big hit. It was his biggest single ever in the top 40, number 15 U.S., number one AOR, right? He had a few other singles. None of them made the top 40. Uh, all night long. I remember this one. Can't get next to you and eye on you. I don't remember hearing those at all. No. Um, but um, basically, the big deal here was that he made this video. And we're going to go into more detail on this, but I just want to say a few historical facts of the video. Now, originally, he wanted Bob Giraldi, who had just come off of directing Michael Jackson's Beat It, but Giraldi wanted a really high budget for the video. So again, this is the era, as, as Billy Squire mentioned in the opening clip, he was doing mostly, most of the early videos are just him on stage with this band. Occasionally there's some little vignettes here and there, but 
this was the era where people were starting to put a lot of money into videos. You know, we had Michael Jackson's Thriller, which was like a mini film. You know, you had all these Duran Duran videos that are super high concept. So he was kind of moving into this era. He then, uh, because Giraldi wanted too much money, the record company nixed that. He went to David Mallet, director of White Wedding, and, um, you know, Billy Idol, the other Billy. Uh, I'll have more to say about Billy Idol in my evaluation because there's some interesting parallels there. But David Mallet's idea was for him to ride in, on a white horse <laughs> just uh, in the video. So, uh, uh, so he nixed that, which is interesting given what came later. Um, and then he eventually got uh, Kenny Ortega, who's most known for directing. Be, eventually by the direct- way, it'd be ironic if he nixed a white horse saying, no, that's too gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's really hilarious. And and he eventually got Kenny Ortega, who would later become really famous and rich from directing all those stupid high school the musicals uh movies. Um and he created a video that will, you know, we'll talk about what that video is in Jeff's eval, and I'll have some say as well. Um, but this video did not go well. Um, and Bill, you know, we mentioned, heard the interview with, um, Alan Hunter of MTV. This was an interview following his next album, Enough is Enough. And his next video he would do for that album. And he was comparing that with the experience of doing this video. He eventually would sue Kenny Ortega for ruining his career. And his quote is really funny here. He said, the video misrepresents who I am as an artist. I was a good looking, sexy guy. (laughs) That certainly didn't hurt in selling records. But in this video, I'm sort of a pretty boy. Uh, And I'm printing around a room. People said he's gay or he's on drugs. It was traumatizing to me. I mean, I had nothing against gays. I have a lot of gay friends. That's the funniest quote ever. Uh, But like it or not, it was more of a a sticky point. Maybe including his boyfriend. But that's a different. So again, we don't remember the impact of this. But Billy Squire ended up firing both of his managers over this. Um, and it's funny because Rudolph Schenker of the Scorpions had later said he really was a Billy Squire fan, but after this video, he just couldn't couldn't take him seriously. But then Martha Quinn of MTV met, rem, doesn't remember any of this going on. Now, all of these rumors, as we'll talk about, come from this book that was written in 2011 called I Want My MTV, that was a retrospective history of MTV. I've, I've listened to the audiobook; It's pretty entertaining. There's some crazy stories. But there's a whole chapter on just this video. Right. And I think that's where this comes from. And we'll talk about that more. But anyway, suffice it to say, but you could see his album sales were already going down. So that's what we'll talk about more in the eval. So I'm going to skip to the next album. Enough is enough. So two years later, again, he's he's taking longer times between albums as well. Right. The first few albums, 80, 81, 82, then two years. Right. And then two years after uh, Signs of Life for Enough is Enough. Now, this album bombed. Uh, he spent a lot of money and time. He worked with uh, producer Peter Collins, who I'll have more, more to say about in my eval. So he he broke up with Reinhold Mack. He broke up with Jim Steinman, worked with this guy, Peter Collins. Let's just say that Peter Collins is responsible for Rush's Hold Your Fire. I won't yeah. say any more than that, but, you know, it's no, you know, I don't know if you can blame a video on that. Um, so anyway, the album bombed number 61 US, didn't certify. It had a single uh, that, was on the AOR charts at number 17 called love is the hero, which is notable because it has a really strong vocal presence uh, from Freddie Mercury. And also because it's features extensive footage of the twin towers. So I guess some people on YouTube said that they, this song was requested or this video was 
played a lot after 9-11. I have no memory of this, but I'm going to play a clip from that song later because I want you to hear the changes in his music. Um, he followed that up in three years later with Here and Now. Yes, that's H-E-A-R and Now. Um, it had uh, one single, Don't Say You Love Me. Again, number four AOR. I have no belief that this is true. Like, how is this number four AOR and you get to... Uh, you know, a song like, um, you know, some of these other songs in the past that were like number 17 or number 20 that were played on the radio a lot more. So yeah. I never remember hearing this song on the radio ever. Uh, no one bought the album. It charted even lower than uh, Enough is Enough. He followed that in 91 with Creatures of Habit and we're outside of the top 100 now. So one, one, uh, 117 US, no cert, of course. Uh, she goes down 1991 number four aor i'm sorry no radio station in 1991 was playing any billy squire unless it was those early songs yeah they were not playing she goes down no <laughs> yeah i'm sorry maybe it's number four on the payola list or something but i just yeah. i just don't believe this in this aor chart i think it's like make-believe yeah um maybe it was one sec maybe one dj played it you know and then he followed that up in 1993 with tell the truth and there's this whole story of this album, which I'll go into his why he thinks the record company intentionally quashed it. Uh, you know, it's 1993. You can guess why. Maybe um, it had one uh, a radio song, Angry 15 AOR. Again, there's no way this song was played. Um, I was going to play it, but I just hate it so much. I didn't want to include it. I had already included some other bad stuff. Um, and then he kind of retired uh, from the music business. Um you know, he didn't really put out, he was frustrated with the record companies and all that. He was dropped from Capitol. You know, he ended his record career. Uh, five years later, he came out with this little uh, minor record called Happy Blue that I mentioned before with Stroke Me Blues. It was like an, a, a kind of unplugged affair. It was on some record label called Jaybird Records. So he had really fallen by then. Um, of course, during this time, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about him was his influence in hip hop, as I mentioned. You know, Run DMC, uh, Tribe Called Quest, UTFO. I mean, there are, uh, we could probably link to this in, in, in the Instagram. There are lists of, of artists who have sampled him. Uh, one of the most prominent was Eminem with his song Berserk, which I'll be playing a clip from that samples the stroke. He had married uh, uh, Nicole Shane, a German female professional soccer player in 2005. He's, he's mostly been out of music. He you know, occasionally did some shows in the uh, 2000s with Ringo Starr's All-Star Band. This is kind of where washed up musicians go to die, I guess. Uh, very common. Uh, he had also taken up some hobbies and he decided to get into writing screenplays. And he wrote this screenplay that actually got shortlisted on a list of final. I guess Sundance does these screenplay lists. I thought Sundance was mostly just for films, but they also did screenplay. So this his screenplay was never produced. Um, but it, it like got like some award. So I, I guess he's still doing that. He's also like, basically guys like him, you know, cause in an interview I was like, well, how does he make a living now? You know, he was not, wasn't that big, but the fact that his songs are played on the radio and satellite radio and, uh, you know, uh, traditional radio a lot, he basically just lives off the royalties. 
Because he um, wrote all those, which makes yeah. it possible for him to do that, right? Yeah. Exactly. He wrote yeah. all of his songs. So he's like, I wrote all my songs, so I'm fine. And he lives in New York. And, you know, one of his hobbies is just upkeep of Central Park. Yeah, like, he just nice. does that. So he's just kind of got this nice, quiet life and, you know, seems to be doing all right. Occasionally, he'll come out of the woodwork and play a little show here and there. Um, but that's it. So let's go into the evals. Okay. Well, let's start off by tackling, you know, the main topic here, which is the Rock Me Tonight video. And uh, I'm going to do, you know, one of our traditional CFX breakdowns here. But if you, you may not remember the video and you may not even remember the song. So let me play a little bit of uh, the song just to reacquaint our listeners with, with what we're about to talk about here. So check this out. Okay, so there you go. Kind of the type of music we were talking about, a little hard rock keyboard, AORE sort of thing. And this is the point where we're going to ask you to pause the show here and go and watch the video. Um, you need to watch the video. It's important uh, part of the experience here. It's all over MTV, um, MTV, YouTube. It was all over MTV back in the day, but it's all over YouTube. You can find it. It's not hard. We can post a link on our Instagram as well. So go and watch it and come back. And so now you're back. And let me uh, start off by uh, describing what is going on in this video. It's a very um, early 80s look, the colors, the, the kind of cinematography, all that kind of stuff. And the video opens with a half-naked Billy pulling himself out of a silk-sheeted bed in some like New York loft type uh, setting with the you know, brick wall and all that kind of stuff. He gets up out of bed and pulls on some Capri-looking uh, pants um, and puts on his best uh, flash dance, torn T-shirt kind of thing as he prepares for the personal uh, journey ahead. <laughs> um, then he, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, getting dressed sort of uh, triggers Billy, and he starts bobbing and finger-snapping and tousling his own hair in a way that was, to me, sort of evocative slip of, of the Paul Stanley, whom we'll be talking about more, sort of slapping his own ass to get going across stage sort of move. But, oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there, there's a lot in common with, with what Kiss was doing in the 80s, as I, I know you're going to get to. Yeah. So Somehow they got away with it. And I'll, I have a theory as to why, but, you know, we'll talk about that. We'll talk <laughs> about that. So he's tossing his own hair. And then the, the craziness uh, starts. So he stops, drops, and starts to crawl on his stomach across the floor while pouting for the camera. Okay, fine. And after a few beats, he kind of rolls over on his back and does some sort of version of, you know, the alligator dance, you know, like they did in uh, Animal House, where they're kind of writhing on their back dancing. Um, but it looked like it was being done, like, by 12 year old girls at a slumber party. It was very weird. It, it, I mean, it's even hard to describe. You just kind of have to see it. But I will say this, there is a clip from that. I believe it's the Detroit show where he's playing my kind of lover. And he does this. I think I shared it with you and he does that. He, he I actually shared you with later in it, but he does that dance. He yeah. actually does ride on his back. So this wasn't that, I mean, let's just put it this way. 
it's less over the top than anything in this video. This video yeah. is extreme dancing compared to what he would do on stage, but it's you can see it him already dancing like a, he thinks he's Mick Jagger a couple of times. You know, yeah. he's like really kind of trying to be sexy and pouty, uh, even in his live act. So you know, we have to treat his opinion of this with some skepticism as to whether this was that. But I mean, it is more over the top. Let's just put it that way. Yep. Yep. He he gets up off the ground and he has some pink garment in his hands that you can't quite see what it is. And he's kneading it like bread, like bread dough, you know? And then he tosses it away, kind of maybe, maybe metaphorically trying to come to grips with something, like a difficult truth or something we'll, we'll get into. And then at this point, he starts prancing around. And to be blunt, it's really the gayest thing ever. I just got to say, <laughs> and not there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it, he is just prancing and flitting around. There's just no other way to say it. He finally gets to an, enough where he has enough. He rips off his flash dance shirt, okay? And then he finds that, uh, you know, that that the pink ladies halter top that he was uh, needing before. So that garment I was talking about was actually a halter top. Now he's wearing this. He, he puts it on. And then he starts to do a, like, a bit of a flash dance a mod- montage where he's sort of dancing uh, against the window with the cityscape in the background and the loft. And there's actually a, a stripper pole, or maybe it's just a pole of something in the, and he starts dancing around that, which was really weird. It's just really, really weird. I don't even know what to say about it. You kind of have to see it. And his dance moves seem like a cross between like a Richard Simmons uh, jazzercise video. And like, what it's almost like an impression of like what a bunch of frat bros would do if you say, hey, do a gay dance, frat bros, in a pink tutu, and they would be dancing around really in a semi-offensive impression. But that's kind of like what Billy Squire is doing. It, His it, wardrobe is totally like Richard Simmons, too. Yeah. I mean, this is like stuff Richard Simmons would have worn back then. Yeah. And except maybe not the, you know, you know, red and white polka dotted shorts, but he could have been wearing that. It wouldn't have been out of place in, in the in the video. Yeah. So, okay, so Billy's done dancing and he's back on the satin sheets in the bed and he's sort of like crying and upset, uh, maybe that he can't be living his friend of Dor- Dorothy Truth here. <laughs> um, and then he gets into the band montage, which, you know, in the opening clip that you talked about was what he always wanted the video to be. He straps on a hot pink telly guitar and gets to playing it with the boys in the band and, you know, rocking around the set. And the set of where the band is playing is full on early 80s, abstract, art crap, Nagel-esque kind of stuff. You've seen it a thousand times before. Not a, not a good era. Um, he's rubbing himself against various band, band members. And uh, one of the other guitarists takes off his shirt. It just, I guess that's the theme. And the dude who does that kind of looks like a little like uh, Lindsey Buckingham in the Trouble era with the same hair and makeup was making me laugh. Anyway, the, the song winds up well, and they're done playing and the crew uh, all walks off to set, presumably maybe heading to the bathhouse or something. So that's the video. Hopefully you've watched it. You get the idea, okay? If you think I'm being a little over the top in my description here and you haven't watched the video, go watch the video. I'm not being over the top at all. The video itself is, is over the top. And so... You know, I want to kind of get into uh, the analysis of this because this is, um, you know, I think where all of the ramifications that you were talking about maybe come from. So, you know, first off, 
I'll say, is this a gay video, right? Like, it, I mean, am, am I, do I have the wrong sort of uh, a view of this? And uh, rather than uh, speculate about this, I figured it might be a good idea to get a little more quantitative about it and establish a, you know, a baseline, like have a standard candle, if you would, to kind of evaluate this. And so on one end of the evaluation spectrum, before we evaluate this particular video, let's start, let's establish our baseline. So one on a spectrum, we'll call this the, the, the low, not gayish kind of end of the video spectrum, maybe not gay at all, is uh, I call like Motorhead Ace of Spades. Why is this video not gay? Well, Lemmy's just too ugly. <laughs> just, Even though there's a lot of leather going on. There's right? a lot or of it's leather. Mostly denim. Mostly denim. It's right? mostly denim. And like yeah. the, the guys in Motorhead are just too ugly and stylish, stylishly and artistically inept for any potential gayness. It, it's just like, you know, so just difficult to look at because everything is so drab and ugly and gross that I'll just call this one in terms of uh, on, on the scale. The other end of the spectrum, if we're kind of trying to set this up, we'll use wham, wake me up before you go-go, right? Um, I don't think anybody has doubts, but if you do about how gay this video is, just watch the scene in the video where George Michael and Andrew Ridgely are dancing in short shorts, and that should take care of any uh, doubts you have about that. I don't think it's very controversial to call this video a, a 10 on the scale, right? Obviously, knowing what we know now in hindsight, too, about George Michael, that sure. we didn't really know then. You know, oh, he had like a I, lot of, well, I mean, he had a lot of women in his videos and I always thought of this as more of being like music for girls okay. when I was a kid, you know, I didn't think of it as like, oh, this guy's gay or not. I thought he's trying to appeal to girls, you know, and he did. He did. Well, he, he did. I mean, he's right? so pretty. He was like, he's yeah. so, he's beautiful. But, you know? but I mean, even in the video, like uh careless whisper, he's singing to a, a girl. And that's one thing we're going to come back to with this rock me tonight video, yeah. I think is yeah. what what's something that's maybe missing from the video that could have maybe which is the difference the we, yeah we'll get into that so yeah. all right so let's just let's establish maybe some other points on the spectrum here i'm going to go and talk about journey separate ways video which deserves its own episode and since this isn't a journey episode i won't get into it i won't break that down but um you know for brevity i'll just call out uh ross valerie's mustache in this video oh yeah and that easily puts this video at a 3.5 on the, on the scale of 10 i think i think ross valerie was 270s for them and that's why they booted him Maybe. you know he was they were trying to be 80s and the other thing amazing about this video is just it's another ridiculous video of course right i mean that's that's the other <laughs> thing it's like how did this not ruin their career because looking back on it it's so dumb although at the time yeah, I didn't really think of it that way. I just thought the song was cool. You know, I like Journey. I like so. the song still to this yeah. day. The video is really oh, yeah. amazing. We'll get into it at another time. All right. So let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Kiss, Heaven's on Fire. We'll have a lot to say about Kiss and Paul Stanley here. and But again, we're going to have to do an 80s Kiss uh, CFX episode. We did yeah. the live one. And we'll break down all these videos in detail. But for now, I'll just say Paul Stanley's prancing and preening around and Gene Simmons' assless pants. Conservatively on this scale, we got to put an eight. I got to go an eight on this video as far as yeah. its gayness. Now, look, other Kiss videos could be used here. Um, for example, any listeners out there here have a quibble about using a pop song like Wake Me Up at, on, this on this chart. You could easily substitute Tears Are Falling from Kiss as 10 on the gay spectrum uh, here instead of Wham. I mean, Paul is dressed in a pink Liberace kind of fabulous outfit. 
And he is even prancing around more than Billy Squire in, in the video. He you has know, he, green fluorescent gloves. Yeah. And he's doing like sexual hand gestures with them the whole time. It's crazy. He's, he's dancing like, I'd say his dancing is easily as ridiculous as anything Billy Squire does. Uh, in, or in more so, even, yeah. even more so. So look, I, I think you could, you know, as Paul would later say on another song, turn up to 10, uh, the, the gayness of uh, Tears Are Falling, right? All right, another data point on the spectrum for, from Kiss to me would be Lick It Up. Uh, the video, again, deserves its own episode, to be honest. Uh, Gene Simmons, by the way, in this video, his appearance and the menacing pantomimes he's trying to do to me are so physically repulsive that he makes Krug from Last House on the Left look like a Mormon schoolboy. <laughs> I mean, if you've never seen the original Last House on the Left, the Krug character is really uh, played by an amazing performance by David Hess. Um, just is really, really one of the worst, you know, villains ever. And and Gene Simmons yeah. is so gross. Is I don't any... recommend. I personally don't recommend Last House on the Left. I felt disgusting after watching that. Yeah, it's, it's a so, hardcore. It's, it's, it's so not hardcore. an easy watch. It's a bleak, really yeah, dark yeah, yeah. movie. Um. Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, anyway, but Gene Simmons is just so gross. Just everything about the dude, personally, physically, everything's so gross. And. The other thing I got to say in the, in the Look It Up video is Paul Stanley's eyebrows look like Sean Connery's uh, cringe yellow face turn in uh, You Only Live Twice, where he impersonates a, a, oh, a yeah, Japanese yeah. guy. Um, so just, I don't know, check out check it out for uh, uh, Paul's eyebrows there. But anyway, just forget all that. Just based on the appearance of Vinnie Vincent in the video, it's a, gay, it's a nine on the gayness scale. Um, Vinnie Vincent, um, if you've never seen him in his video, he looks he, he looks like a small woman. Uh, I don't, he may be, actually. I, I, I don't know. But anyway, so there you go. All right, so where does Rock Me Tonight fall on this spectrum? I, I go, I'd have to say it's a 9 out of 10. I don't think it's a 10 out of 10. Tears are falling around. 10 out of 10. I think it's a 9 out of 10. And I kind of wanted to pause here and see where you would put it on the spectrum before we continue. Yeah, I'm going to disagree with Kiss. I'm going to go lower on Kiss. I don't think Kiss is that high. And the reason is something that Kiss has that Billy Squire doesn't have are women in the yeah. video. I, I, so I Kiss about has, that in a minute. Kiss has girls, yeah. Billy Squire doesn't. So I think, and and actually he rectifies this in his follow-up, which I'll get to in my eval. But um, uh, Odd choice of words, but we'll, we'll continue, yes. Uh, <laughs> but anyway... I would say uh, Rock You Tonight, it, again, a Rock Me Tonight, rather. Again, it. you're probably going to talk about some of this. Uh, it's his audience, too. It's who's yes. watching it. Who's his fans, right? Because yeah. if this was a different fan base, like I said, Prince could get in a bathtub shirtless, and there were tons of dudes liking Prince, you yeah. know, it had no issue, but Billy Squire is this kind of meat and potatoes kind of frat boy jock fan base. I mean, there were obviously girls who liked Billy Squire, women who liked Billy Squire. I mean, in that, those concerts, there's, it's pretty equal between men and women. Uh, and so I don't know, but I think, I think for his audience and everything rock me tonight is probably a 10. Okay. Uh, okay. just because of who it is in the context and how weird it, I mean, let's, let's get this straight. I don't think at the time I may not have thought of it watching it now. I can't divorce my mind from the opinion, the general opinion of this video, that it's a disaster. Like it is, 
it really just doesn't fit his image at all. And I get why he was mad. But I also don't get while he was making it how he couldn't have known. He sees what clothes he's wearing. So it's I, I am like, about to talk about that anyway, exact let's, thing. I agree. All right, all right I'm, I'm jumping ahead. Let's let you go on. But that right. suffice to say, I'm at the peak. I'm at all 10. Right, and I 10. would say, you're 10. Say Paul Stanley's stuff is about a seven for okay. me, just because of the women involved, <laughs> right? Because they still yeah. put those in there. All right. Okay. All right. So uh, look, one take on this video is, and you just talked about this, is it's uh, an anomaly. Like some a weird artistic art project from the director that had gone wrong, and and that's certainly almost like Billy's take on it when he talks about it. But does this have any merit, right? Um, I mean, was Billy doing things in this video? Um, yeah, he, like you just said, he was the one who was doing all this dancing, all this prancing and preening around. Um, and you know, what's the story here? And and I wanted to test this hypothesis a little bit that this could be sort of a you know, uh, the, a video gone wrong, a director off the rails, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, my wife really had no idea about Billy Squire. She had heard some of the songs, you know, on the radio, knew nothing about him, didn't even know what he looked like, really. Um, and so, you know, she'd heard the stroke and things like that. So I, I wanted to play some of the videos um, or before this album came out, some of the rock performance videos you were talking about, some of the dance moves and some of the live stuff that you alluded to earlier. And I didn't say anything other than just played uh, some of the, the the snippets from these videos. And the first thing she said unprompted is like, oh, he's gay, right? Oh, wow. Like, like her did gay she, are... did, I just have to ask real quick. Did she also think he was a handsome and sexy man? Yeah. Yeah. She, <laughs> yeah. she, she thought, she said, oh, he's really good looking, you know, yeah. and, and, and all that stuff. And she, um, you know, likes his voice a lot, which I do too. And I'll talk about that. Yeah. But she's like, She's like, oh, yeah, you know, she, like, oh, he's gay, right? Like, she just assumed that this, the storyline of this person right, was right. that they were gay or had come out like like George Michael or, or anyone else. And just to his move, his movements, the manner, the whole thing, she's immediately struck. And I mentioned that he's married, as far as anyone knows, to a woman. She's like, are, are you sure? Wow. Uh, you know, and, and keep in mind that she had no idea about this video, the controversy or anything about him, just other than he appeared to her to be very, to, to be very, you know, have gay mannerisms or whatever right. you, know, you could say that means. Right. So the other hypothesis is that the director, Kenny Ortega kind of went like, you know, Coco from fame here. And yeah. that convinced him to do a bunch of stuff that he didn't really want to do that. He would never have done otherwise. Right. Um, ruining what was, you know, a pristine tough guy image. Well, again, if you watch these videos that you, you alluded to, and I, I had played for my wife, the dance moves that he's doing in the Rock uh, Rock Me Tonight video are pretty much the same as he would do live on stage and in, in various interludes in his in his live show. Um, and, you know, also, and you, you just mentioned this is he actually recorded this video, right? Yeah, he spent probably exactly. days doing all these things, different takes of this again and again and again. And at any point, he, you know, he could have said, hey, I'm not doing this. But he did it and bought into it. And, you know, he wasn't uh, uh, drugged. You know, he didn't, he wasn't mind altered. You know, he, he did all these things. And so my take on this video is really like this. It, you, you mentioned before that um, you said that, uh, you know, Billy Squire has a lot of uh, a queen in him, right? I think there may be a lot of Billy Squire and a lot of queens. Yeah. And I think that... Um, this was an, an aborted coming out video 
<laughs> and instead of being embraced by his fans in public for what he was clearly trying to tell the world about his truth and, and life, I think he panicked because, you know, uh, it, it didn't go well. And his career wasn't going well and it wasn't helping things. And he kind of, you know, retreated back to the East Coast to toughen up with Hall & Oates, which if you're a fan of uh, Yacht Rock, oh, Yacht I get Rock. that reference. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, I'll, I'll kidding aside here, uh, the impact on his career um, and the aftermath to me is all about expectations. And you were sort of talking about this, right? The video was so against uh, type for him. Right. And especially for those who really only understood his image, like the PR and marketing and stuff like that. This was before the days of, you know, TikTok videos, obviously, way before YouTube or anything uh, like that. And um, if you were a fan of his music, you probably had that mental image of sort of a cool, long haired rocker in mind. Um, and then you see the video and it doesn't jive. Right. And it could even be a little disconcerting for people who sort of you know, like to have their music representing who they think they want to be or, you know, whatever. This is kind of how marketing and advertising works. You know, like Harley Davidson has a whole image that they've created because, and people want to project themselves against these brands and that's kind of how it right. works. And I'm not going to say that there wasn't some homophobia involved here, um, but my guess is that the biggest part of this was what you said. It's a disparity in expectation, right? Between um, what uh, people expected and what they got. And the, it manifested in other ways as well. Like, for example, you, you mentioned Prince. That's a great example. Paul Stanley is, a, is another example I'll talk about in a second. But Christopher Cross was a weird example of this too, right? Because Christopher Cross was, music was like super popular. Um, you never saw the dude. Um, his music was played all over the radio. And when people started, and his music was essentially marketed um, without his image for a long time. Um, and, you know, probably by design because uh, the record company uh, people probably were like, people listen to this music and think that Christopher Cross was some sort of like handsome yacht rock crooner um, that most ladies probably imagined was going to, you know, look far different than he looked in person, which, you know, Christopher Cross talented artist for sure, really good guitarist, all that, great writer, wrote all those wonderful songs, nice voice. But, and, you know, he's kind of a pudgy, not so handsome, uh, you know, bald dude. And, you know, sometimes it's just the delta in expectation, uh, which is really uh, the thing, right? Okay, so that takes us uh, squarely to uh, to Paul Stanley, right? So you were saying, well, you don't think Kiss is, is the videos were as gay as I said because in the Kiss videos there were women, and right. you know why didn't Paul Stanley and Kiss suffer the some the same sort of thing that uh, you know Billy Squire does, and it's you know I think I agree with you. It's what you said is however gay Paul appeared in those videos and it was really really gay. He always sort of covered his tracks by having him you know toting around some scantily dressed metal slut you know as his beard in those videos. Um, I guess that light cover sort of gave the, you know, no doubt homophobic fans that were fans of Kiss at times, the mental excuse they needed to say, oh, that's just Paul being Paul. That's just Paul being over the top. Even though if you go back and you watch those videos and you just watch Paul absent, you know, kind of the metal chicks in there, there's nothing gayer than Paul Stanley in those Kiss videos. There just isn't. 
Yeah. And then there's the other thing of it's kind of it's, you know, hair metal. So right. it's glam and they're dressed in rock. And even though they're wearing these ridiculous fluorescent outfits, especially in Tears Are Fallen, and they're all they're all leathered up and I guess uh or he's got like the tiger print thing and heaven's yeah. on fire or whatever. But it's like um actually he has those pants. He's got these ridiculous pants that but then David Lee Roth kind of wore those kind of pants. Yeah. And and it's like it's kind of the glam. You know, it's effeminate, but it's obviously to appeal to women. Whereas with Billy Squire, he's dressed in these like little, like like you said, it's almost like something like uh, Richard Simmons would wear, or uh, you know maybe George Michael would wear. And it was not in, you know, it didn't mesh with his like AOR rock image. Yeah, completely and with antithetical. Kiss, to with it. Kiss, their kind of glam thing, they immediately went to that and lick it up. And so I think it 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 kind of is like it's the whole thing you talk about with expectations people expect that of paul stanley yeah you know they expect him to dance around and disco i mean kiss did a disco song for crying out loud they they've they've been through all these permutations people are people know what to expect with them whereas with billy squire he had changed his image in a way that didn't transition him into what the pop artist he wanted to be with this more popular rock being tonight. I'll right. have more to say about that, but, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's that expectation thing. That's really the key um, where people just did not get it. And it is ridiculous, you know, in retrospect, but again, we still have to decide if this was the, was it, you know, was yeah. this the thing that, that, and I will argue, I don't think it was that alone uh, in my eval, but, but anyway, I agree with you that the expectation thing is key. Yeah. Um, it just threw people for a crazy loop and it just, right. people just know like, okay, I guess Billy Squire is trying to tell us something and he didn't follow through. I do think he was trying to tell us something uh, and, and he just didn't follow through on it. And, and Billy, if you know, that is your truth, you should just come out. You're 70 years old already. You know, let's get, let's get it over. <laughs> with. Um, all right. Other thoughts on Billy Squire and I'll get into my evaluation. Um, he was also really difficult to work with. There's a lot of stories about it. He like fought with all of his producers. Everyone hated working with him. He hated working with everybody. And he sort of talked himself into apparently in some interviews that I read that that was like part of his process, that he was the difficult dude. And he, he wanted his producers to push him and, you know, kind of uh, get a little uh, rough with him maybe uh, in a, in a way. Uh, and he, he, uh, that was what he expected. And and he just didn't have good things to say about hardly anyone he worked with, which maybe says a lot. Um, I do like his voice a lot. I, I, I think his, his, for a rock voice, it sounds really good. I mean, he's a good singer. He's a, he's a really uh, solid guitar player and the handful of songs that uh, we keep talking about are good songs. I like them. I, yeah. I he like was a good songwriter when he, when he hit the mark, which we'll talk about more. Yeah. But. I, I want to play a couple of those uh, in fact. So I want to play uh, in the dark, you know, the title track uh, for that second album. So well, here's a little of that. Good song, right? Yeah, super catchy. It's yeah. one of his best ones for sure. Yeah, I like it. It's good. And I I mean, I enjoy it. I listen to this probably, you know, 10 times. 
uh, while we're you know preparing for this show. I was like, yeah, it's good, solid. Another one I want to play is uh, "Lonely as the Night." So here's a little a clip of that you may be familiar with. Live. I mean, he's a really good singer live. Um, his, his guitar what sounds good. What show was that? What, what clip was that from? Uh, I don't recall. Sometime in the early, you know, early 80s. Sometime. It might have been even the, some of the same shows that you uh, clipped me. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll find it. I can post it on our Instagram. But it, it was pretty good. You know, I, I, I liked his, I liked these songs. I like the ones that you're going to cover, the ones we already talked about. So um, from an evaluation point of view, yeah, I'm short on Billy Squire. I, I mean, especially as compared to his heyday um, when he's selling all those huge albums. It's kind of, in a sense, the same story we talked about with Donna Summer. And you mentioned you were surprised by how much um, he, he had in the way of sales and all that. I don't think anyone is ever going to rediscover the larger Billy Squire uh, oeuvre and say, wow, this is really amazing stuff, I think. The, the hits like The Stroke and all that stuff will continue to be on 80s playlists, as it should be. Um, and people are going to enjoy the handful of songs that we're pretty much talking about, but there's not a lot of deep, you know, tracks that people are going to, you know, dredge up. Um, and then lastly, just again, you know, I, I want to encourage Billy uh, to come out. Um, it's totally cool. Um, we wouldn't feel any differently about him or his music if he did, and the, and the world really could use more of his interpretive dance. So um, I will I will turn it over to you. Cool. Yeah. Um, that that's that, that's good. I think um, I really like those two songs a lot, and I really like the early Billy Squire the most. But um, yeah, as far as my eval, let's talk about the good stuff. Uh, I think again, he's a really good catchy combo of this kind of new synthesizer, new wave and AOR. And it's similar to uh, Loverboy, I think. Um, and I probably like the his hits about as much as I like theirs. Although I think, I don't think they really have an album that's as uh, consistent as In the Dark. Um, it's interesting. He reminds me of Billy Idol a lot in a weird way. Uh, Billy Idol was, was almost like the mirror image of of Billy Squire. He had come from the punk world and became yeah. more AOR. Whereas Billy Squire is coming from the AOR world and becoming more new wave and more pop. And they're, they're also very heavily invested in eighties technology. I mean, Billy Idol uses a lot of synthesizer, you know, he's got that Steve Stevens unique guitar. That's very eighties, yep. very of its time. And there's hard rock and he was played on classic rock radio, but he's also like, kind of a new wave guy. So it was kind of interesting, but I think Billy Idol, what he did was he was able to create these ridiculous over the top videos because he had that image. Like you mentioned the image that Billy Squire had was 
basically meat and potatoes, rock and roll. And he tries to be very flamboyant, very over the top in this video. He, in other words, one of the one of the things he did in the video was he tried to become a rock star on his own. And in the early videos, he's a lead, he's the leader of the band, but he's not highlighted as a solo artist. Whereas yeah. in Rock Me Tonight, he's highlighted as a solo artist and his image is very confused. You know, it's got, he's got this kind of effeminate, uh, you know, very pink, uh, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of fashions that don't really fit in with anything he was doing yeah. before, even though Rock Me Tonight is a lot poppier than the early stuff. There's not, you know, the guitar is is more subdued. It's there, but it's much more dominated by keyboards. I mean, that whole album, as I'll talk about, is uh, Signs of Life is super 80s production. I mean, it's very similar to the trajectory Pat Benatar went on, which uh, which I'll get into. Um, now, I want to talk about The Stroke, but before I talk about The Stroke, let's talk about its origins. Uh, because The Stroke is a really weird song in his catalog. There's really only two songs like it, The Big Beat and The Stroke. Uh, the other songs are much more the, that you played in The Dark and Lonely is the Night. They're much more rooted in AOR. There's very, they're very keyboard-centric, uh, which I think is another strength that I'll, the way he used keyboards and technology early on was really strong. But he has this... Um, this beat, uh, th this kind of rhythmic thing he creates with the big beat and the stroke, which I think is really interesting and a really strong, a strong point and made him unique. And I think that's why the stroke, other than, you know, it's subject matter, maybe, as we <laughs> talked about, uh, is what attracted me to it. But let's play a little bit of the big beat so you can hear the big deal with this kind of beat that he created that was so influential in hip hop and influenced the stroke. So yeah, you can hear it's very basic and at the yeah. beginning, you almost want to start rapping over the beat. It's just, <laughs> it's so hip hop and it's so unusual for the time. I mean, there was really not, um, I mean, Foreigner was kind of experimenting with this dancey side of things a bit with Urgent. I mean, Urgent is like almost like a dance song, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's, it, it's not as, it's not as rooted in classic rock. So he was kind of treading that line as well. And then he really did it with the, you know, the follow-up single, which was the stroke. And, um, you know, it's so different than the other tracks on the albums, like the big beat too. that album, the first album tail of the tape, there's a lot of kind of power pop and it's kind of weak sauce. There's really not any other song other than the big beat that's memorable in any way, but, Obviously, his follow-up in the dark, as we've discussed, has a lot of memorable hits. But the stroke is really unique. It's it's that same rhythmic kind of dance thing. Uh, and it's also got some glam rock, as I mentioned, the Gary Glitter uh, kind of influence. Um, but I think it's just such a classic. And I think 
if Billy Squire is going to be remembered for anything, it's going to be two things, one good and bad. One is the Rock Me Tonight video, which has become blew up on YouTube. I mean, Jeff mentioned you can watch that on YouTube. It's all over YouTube, but there's parodies of it. There's the one we talked about, the one that's silent where the person just did these sound effects without music. That's hilarious. But there's all these video. There's all these videos of people doing exactly what Jeff did in his eval, which is talk about this whole phenomenon of hit ruining his career. And um, I'll talk about whether I agree with that or not. So that's one thing you'll be remembered for. The other thing he's going to be remembered for is the stroke because the stroke is such an iconic early song and it's so unique. There's really nothing that sounds like it. I mean, the big beat is like kind of a bare bones predecessor, but other than that, there's really nothing that sounds like it. And it's also a song that's kind of bubblegummy, like I mentioned, glammy and bubblegummy and FM. So it was an AM gold and FM gold song at the same time. So let's play the first clip of it. Yeah, so you can hear it's just really bare bones, really simple with this great riff and this total sing-along uh, verse and chorus. Um, but what's really interesting is the song kind of has this weird production where it almost becomes a novelty song, where toward the end, as the song goes on, you know, it's got that kind of effect on the drums, that sweeping sound. I don't know how that's done, but it's... um. It's really interesting. And but toward the end, it almost becomes almost a novelty because it has this kind of Russian march that comes in. <laughs> so let's let's play that at the end. I gotta ask: yeah. Is this song the the narrator narrator uh, from the song? Is it from the perspective of his dick? Yeah, I don't know because I almost I was I had a little comment here that you know maybe "Stroke Me, Stroke Me" is already as as homoerotic as the "Rock Me Tonight" video that early. You know, I don't know. Or is he talking um, to somebody else? I I couldn't quite ever figure that out. I you know I never paid attention to the verses. I'm, I I don't even know what he says. <laughs> Uh, you got your number we're down. Derelict in not having yeah. the, the lyrics. Here. I know, yeah. I know, I know. But at any rate, because I think the music and the production and the arrangement is more important here. Uh, maybe you know it. It's it's kind of a nonsense novelty song that's just kind of made to be a sing along fun song. And um, yeah, as I mentioned before, it's totally in between innings, you know, get the crowd psyched up kind of thing that you yeah. hear at a ballpark. Um, I also should mention My Kind of Lover, because that one's kind of a weird poppy song, too. But it's so catchy and it has such a great bridge. I'm not going to play it because there's only so many clips we're going to play here. I've already played three and I've got a few more um, because I wanted to cite the hip hop influence, because I think that's a point in his legacy, uh, whether he'll stand the test of time. Uh 
And, but I really like my kind of lover. Uh, I mean, he's got that kind of my kinda, kinda, yeah. you know, everybody, uh, he's got some other where he uses YA, like, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's a little silly. Um, it's kind of that glammy thing, I guess, the glam influence, which we didn't really mention at the beginning in the zeitgeist, but it's definitely there. Uh, so, you know, he came out with this first album in the dark. It's mostly AOR with this one weird novelty his, his song. Second, his second album. Second yeah. album, sorry, in the dark. Yeah, uh, yeah. I always forget about Tale the Tape, as everybody else did, except for hip-hop artists, apparently. Um, so he, you know, he came out with In the Dark, massive success. Now, to follow it up, he kind of evolved, right? So he's playing this one kind of music. There's a little bit of variety, but 90% of the album is like classic AOR in the Foreigner, Loverboy vein. And then he comes out with uh, Emotions in Motion, which is a lot different. You know, there's kind of R&B influences here, and there's definitely New Wave influences here. And it's more poppy even than the stuff on the, on the second album. So let's play the clip from the big hit from that, Everybody Wants You. Great song. Like it. Yeah. You could just imagine like a new wave, like everybody wants you. Yeah. You know, you can totally imagine <laughs> the vocals being replaced yeah. by, you know, uh, you know, maybe a ranking Roger could. Uh, uh, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. What's his name? Um, Dave Wakefield from yeah. the, uh, from, from uh, the English beat could, yeah. could sing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's herky jerky riff. It's very poppy. And of course in this video, what is he doing? He's doing his signature dance, which he yeah. does in rock me tonight, which is put your elbows to your stomach and move your arms side to side, yeah. right? Move your wrist side to side. Here, it's like wait, doing this. I, I got to ask you something about this. Do you, do you think there's a chance that Billy Squire has the Elaine Bennis dance syndrome where it's just, it's a horrible dancer. Like yeah, lane. he's a horrible dancer. I mean, that's the other thing is like in Rock Me Tonight, all of his, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Ortega was co uh, was uh, choreographing it. You know, yeah. he probably choreographed it. It does look like Richard Simmons choreographed it, too. Uh, but he's doing some Billy Squire moves. Uh, because if you watch some of his early co uh, concert footage, if you watch Everybody Wants You, he's doing some of these same moves. Yeah. So, you know, as to whether... Uh, you know, Ortega gets the blame for everything. I'm a little skeptical of Me that. Me too. Um, yeah. So at any rate, I wanted to call out the other thing that I think. It, so in his favor, he has some great early songs. He's got some really iconic early 80s hits. Uh, the AOR classics Jeff played as well as The Stroke. Uh, you know, he's got uh, My Kind of Lover, Everybody Wants You. These are great songs. These are kind of the ones that I think are still being played that people still care about. But then I want to go into a little bit, a few clips of just the hip hop influence, because I think it's kind of funny, but you can really hear it. Right. So the first one we're going to play is from a classic early hip hop song called Roxanne Roxanne by the uh, hip hop one hit wonder, totally one hit wonder UTFO. And this samples the big beat. She need a guy like you. She needs a guy like me with a high IQ. And she takes to my rap because my rap's the best. The educator back at FD will never fess. So there you go. Yeah. I love the high IQ line. Uh, but anyway, it's like that beat. You've heard that a million times. And that's just the big beat. 
Yeah, that's all it is. And it's kind of a cornerstone of hip hop. Again, we'll link to some references online where they list all of the different uh, hip hop songs that have sampled this over the decades. Um, and then, of course, one of the biggest artists of all time of any genre, Eminem, uh, in one of his recent, I think it's like 10 years ago or so, he came out with uh, Berserk, which heavily, heavily samples the stroke. So let's play a little bit of that. Yeah, so you get the idea, right? And it's um, that's a song that's specifically about old school hip hop, and he has a bunch of references in there. So he wanted something that sounded like early hip hop, so the stroke beat was perfect. But I mean, he takes the whole fucking song, like, yeah. You know, it's like so. So really that appreciates it. the the royalties on that. Exactly, sure. that's yeah. got to be heavy royalties there. I mean, Eminem is still huge. Um, at any rate, now as far as the bad stuff goes, uh, you know look at his trajectory. So, so, so let's talk about this whole rock me tonight thing and whether it really ended his career. Now, interestingly enough, rock me tonight was his biggest hit, uh, mm. of all the hits that would charted the highest. Um, but, and it's interesting that he had a big hit and then, you know, after that he had nothing. I mean, going from a number 11 platinum album to a number 161 uncharting album, is a big dramatic thing. And it kind of does lend credence to the theory that the video was all it was. Um, but look at his trajectory, right? He basically was selling fewer albums every time, right? He, he obviously, with the exception of Tale of the Tape, he didn't break with that one. But then when he broke with In the Dark, 3 million. In Emotions in Motions a year later, 2 million. It took him two years to do Signs of Life. Two years. So he lost any momentum he would have had from a, a quick release after that. And he still managed to get a pretty big hit in Rock Me Tonight. So that sells 1 million and only goes gold in Canada. Then you go down to Enough is Enough and it bombs. So I would argue that he was already on the downturn. You know, he was already down. And uh, I think the video, did the video end his career? I don't think it helped it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I definitely think all the stuff we brought up about his audience not coalescing with this. Uh, was part of the problem. But most of these kinds of artists uh, that he's in the same genre with, like, you know, Hart is an example, um, were on the downturn this time. If you look at Loverboy, who actually were even more successful than Billy Squire, they sold a lot more records. Um, by 1987, they were down to gold. They had all, I mean, their albums are like, their first couple albums are like 5 million plus. They have one that's like 8 million. I mean, they were huge. Yeah. Um, but they were down to gold by 1987, right? And so a lot of these AOR bands, like Foreigner was, again, much huger than Billy Squire. She, uh, Foreigner, by 1987, was down to single platinum. And again, they were in the eight... I think Loverboy was like 5 million max, but Foreigner was like 8, 8 million. Yeah. Um, and for the other thing with Foreigner is their 1984 album, Agent Provocateur, sold a lot, but they had a ballad. I want to know what love is. Now, Billy Squire didn't seem to be able to write. He has ballads. They're just not catchy, right? They're not the songs that people remember. They're not, they weren't played very much. And, um, you know, Foreigner had this massive ballad. So it kind of kept them from tanking earlier, I think, than they would have. And you look at Pat Benatar, she did the same transition to very synthy pop that Billy Squire did. Um, and by 1984, her albums were only gold. Yeah. So, 
And again, she was probably in the same range of success, you know, like uh, her biggest album was 3 million too. And that was crimes of passion. So, you know, and then heart is kind of an exception because they really tanked in the early eighties. But what they did was they got together with a bunch of professional songwriters and boosted their career. And I think a lot of these artists who AOR artists who stayed popular actually ended up getting outside songwriters. Yeah. So he didn't do any of that. So I think he was already on the downturn. And I think that kind of music, the lover boy kind of slash uh, Billy Squire music was just not cool in 1985, 86. By then you had hair metal kind of replacing it. And I think that's why Kiss survived is because they were a natural, they were natural forefathers of hair metal. And you had a lot bands like Def Leppard that were like pop metal slash hair metal really taking over. And obviously the or big in, one- in Kiss's uh, case, fake hair metal because right, they all fake. were weird. <laughs> yeah, hair, hair extensions metal. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, anyways, uh, you know, you had that and then you had Bon Jovi, which played kind of similar AOR music, but was Bon Jovi had that hair metal image. And they also used outside songwriters extensively. And that was really what took over this audience. And so I don't, I really just don't think that he would have had the audience anyway. Um, and again, if you listen to the albums, most of the catchy hits, like 80% of them are on in the dark. And then you really just have one or two on each album that are uh, after that, that are, that are actually catchy. Um, and you look at the covers too, like in the dark, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's, playing on his image but by the time you get to signs of life it's really it, we'll put this up it's a one of the ugliest album covers of all time it's like jeff we talked about how the rock me tonight video had all this terrible like 80s design this is this cover is like the worst you know it's the worst album cover and again he did up rock me tonight it's a catchy fucking song you know it was made to be a hit but there's really not much else on the album that that bears that out. And the production is so it's it takes away all of his AOR. There's there's very little guitar on that album. You know, it's so synth dominated. I just don't think his audience, not only the video, but I just don't think his audience was along for that ride. You know, I think with Pat Benatar, she was already moving into pop and her voice. I mean, his voice is really good, but it's not of that level. No, certainly. and Pat Few Benatar are. was. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think, you know, again, I do think the video was a factor, but I don't think it was the only thing going on. Yeah. So now he did after after Signs of Life and he noticed that his concert attendance was going down. Um, he decided to switch producers again for his next album. Enough is enough. And again, to Jeff's what Jeff mentioned, he was very notoriously hard to work with, you know, a quote unquote perfectionist. and he spent another two years. So again, these artists are losing like Pat Benatar, boom, 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 album after album after album. And you could argue that's why the quality went down. You know, we argued that in the show, but she kept herself in the public eye. She yeah. kept releasing music. He was just off the radar by this point. By 1986, I think nobody knew who he really was. And he got together with Peter Collins. Now, Peter Collins did have some successes. He produced... Um, Empire and Operation Mindcrime by Queen's Reich, we've mentioned before. <laughs> well, um, if you haven't heard Operation Mindcrime, you haven't. Yeah, if you haven't heard, heard the whole thing, dude, you haven't heard it. <laughs> it's like, I think Queen's Reich went downhill after that first EP. The first EP is fucking great power metal. Everything after that's garbage to me. I'm sorry. We'll eventually maybe do them. 
Uh, we both episode. agree. It'll be a, under, a short, short, short kind yeah. of thing. But yeah. Maybe we need to listen to it again. I doubt uh, it. But but I fucking hate Operation Minecraft. But he also produced like Power Windows, which again, Power Windows has its moments. It's not that bad. But the production sucks. It's like the most 80s sounding thing ever. And then, of course, he produced, I think, what should be universally recognized as Russia's absolute nadir. Uh, fucking hold your fire. Uh, fucking concur, terrible 100%. album. Sucks. Yeah. And Alice Cooper, Hey Stupid. So he we get a, got a very 80s, over-the-top producer. And his big comeback idea was to create the song with Freddie Mercury and this video, right, called Love is the Hero. Now, that's the video they're talking about in the interview that we played at the beginning of the show with um, Alan Hunter of MTV. So let's play a little bit of Love is the Hero. This was his big comeback, right? That sucks. Yeah, it's so it's not catchy in the right way. It's really terrible. The production is over the top 80s. Even Freddie Mercury can't save it. And, you know, I don't know what Freddie Mercury thought of it, but he does. Let's just say he doesn't appear in the video at all, <laughs> uh, even though his voice is all over it. I mean, it's I'll, almost like, uh, it's almost like under pressure level duet. Yeah, you know, it's, he's Freddie, on it. Freddie Mercury wouldn't appear in the Rock Me Tonight video because he said it was too gay. <laughs> but this video so this video was his idea of what a video should be so it's basically they're in some kind of loft in new york and yeah. the band's like Again. pretending to play their instruments right but this time there's a woman uh, on the balcony there's a hot woman now she's relegated to the balcony she well, never comes inside so let's just put her over there but yeah it's it's really conspicuous that he was like let me try to get rid of this image and and put this in here and, but <laughs> the song did nothing wait, wait, wait a minute wait a minute i, I gotta just say here if you're really concerned with people thinking you know you're gay and you're not and all that stuff like doing a bunch of videos and music with freddie mercury maybe isn't the cure for that i mean freddie mercury one of the greatest you know, musicians, rock heroes ever, but not necessarily known to toughen up your image or to get you out of people thinking that you may, you know, be going that way if, uh, you know, you're trying to change that image. Right? Well, he did say he had gay friends and they were really close friends. So he was friends with all yeah, of Yeah, awesome. But, but yeah. I mean, be friends with Freddie Mercury and all those guys. I mean, Freddie's amazing. But I mean, if he's trying to change his image is my point, like make, making a bunch of music with Freddie is probably not the way to do that. And maybe he didn't want to. Maybe he's like, fuck that. Freddie's awesome. And I want to make music with, with Freddie. Great. But it's not going to change your image in the way that he's trying to maybe pull or your suggestions. But I, I will, or what's interesting, though, is I don't think Queen suffered from this problem at all. I don't think, I think Queen started to make music that people didn't care about. Yeah. But even, even in, I think most people kind of knew. Yeah, Maybe of they course. Really it's an expectation it's like, thing. No one cared because they were so great. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's true. Because Queen Queen is like... Well, they're named Queen. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> that's true. No one, no one had any doubts and no one cared because they were so awesome. And, you yeah, know, Freddie's it's true. Like it's arguably true. the greatest frontman in rock yeah. history. You can yeah, easily argue that. 
I mean, they did hot space and that didn't even derail their career. Even yeah, though it's as exactly. bad as anything Billy and Squire Flash did. Gordon. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> well, I love Flash Gordon. That's for another episode. That's a that's a good movie to do, by the way. Yeah. But obviously we'll have to do Queen because they're absolutely legends and their of course. legacy has only grown. But anyway, um, I want to talk a little bit about this post, you know, because obviously we're evaluating his whole works, right? So all of his works. And so we, we need to talk about some of the post-hit stuff. And obviously I played Love as the Hero. I think it only gets worse from there. Uh, somehow he managed to really get high on the AOR chart, even though, I don't know what radio station where was playing these fucking songs, but anyway, um, so he basically releases uh, a few other albums here and now creatures of habit. They're kind of the same boat as, as this 80s stuff, but with an 80s production toned down. Well, in 1993, obviously uh, he put his finger to the wind and read the signs and, and somewhere came else this, maybe talk yeah, to John Karabi. Yeah. <laughs> he basically came out with an album called tell the truth. <laughs> Um, and he was still on Capitol. Capitol did not get rid of him, but he mm. tells this story about tell the truth. So tell the truth is a really long, you know, it, it suffers what we call CD-itis, which I've called in many, I've, I've uh, talked about in many episodes. We've talked about where in the nineties, you know, everything was on CD. So, oh, a CD holds 60 minutes. So we need uh, to have a more really than that. long, it's like boring. 75 or something, but yeah. Well, yeah, but they, they usually they would do about an hour. Um, and, and so they would fill out the space 55 minutes, an hour, maybe even sometimes 70 minutes. Um, and so uh, albums became really long with a lot of filler. And you also had songs that were longer, like we talked about in the Motley Crue self-titled album, where these songs are like five, six minutes, and they're just super boring. Well, this is Tell the Truth. This is what Tell the Truth suffers from. You don't have any keyboard on this album. It's completely raw. Um, and it's full of songs that are kind of a return to form, but just don't aren't memorable. Yeah. And that's very common what you see during this time. But what happened was Billy Squire was talking about how the record company was, you know, he was fighting with them over this album. And he said that a record exec who was in charge of marketing came up to him and said, this is the best album we're, we're releasing within six months, but I'm going to bury it because I just care about grunge. It's like, first of all, that never, that conversation never happened. Agree, There's 100%. no way anyone would say this is the best record of the last week about this fucking weak ass album. Or somebody might've said it, but they're just blowing smoke up his ass. Yeah. Right? Blowing yeah. smoke up his ass. And, and, you know, I'm going to bury it intentionally because it's not grunge. Cause ironically it kind of is like Squire garden. It's yeah. a little grungy <laughs> and it's kind of sounds like he's trying to catch up with the times. His, his first single was called Angry, our first radio song. And it was a massive AOR hit, supposedly, even though in 1993, I guarantee you, no one touched this record. It did, didn't he have even a, chart, did he have really. a flannel halter top that he wore in the video? <laughs> I don't even think there's a video. Oh, OK. Uh, I tried to look for it and I was going to play a clip of this, but I'm just bored by this song so much i you know you can go listen to it if you want to it's just not very good you know you with some of these albums you hope to find a little gem that is overlooked i always love to find oh yeah this late album this guy released is actually completely underrated and you'll see people on youtube in the comments for these album for this album on youtube say that and it's just not true it's super boring um not good at all so as as to my evaluation um yeah, I, as I mentioned, I was hoping to discover that some of these albums are really great, better than I thought they were. Uh, the only one that's true of is In the Dark. Uh, again, it peters out toward the end. 
uh, with a couple of ballads that don't really work. They're not really memorable, but I would say like 90% of the album is really good and catchy. Um, and yeah, I think the stroke is a, is a classic. I think it will always be remembered, even though it's a little bit of a joke, but it's fun. And I think it will be played at baseball stadiums for, you know, forever. Uh, I think he's talented. And when he, with his, you know, when he, when he hits the mark, he's a great songwriter, you know, for that kind of AOR genre, you know, yeah. he never really, he, he never really made anything that's like a five-star classic because he's pretty limited, I think, in what he did, but he did it well. And I think he's a, a standout of the genre. Right. But then if you look past his hits and you look past the first, maybe, uh, or maybe the second two albums and maybe rock me tonight, his output is really bland. You know, I think his trajectory is very similar to uh, Pat Benatar's where, you know, he's got a couple of really strong albums, like the first three albums, really strong. And then he kind of tries to go pop and it kind of falls apart. But the thing about Pat Benatar is she had really good hits up until like 1988. So at least there were a couple songs on each album. And of course, um, you know, as far as guitar and vocals, I really, you know, I, we, we did have some controversy over Neil Giraldo's contribution, but I don't think Billy Squire's anywhere near him as a player. And I also don't think he's anywhere near Pat Benatar as a vocalist. She's just iconic and stands out. And obviously she was also a groundbreaker for female rock and roll. Um, so overall, I just, I really wanted, part of the reason I wanted to do this is I wanted to come out with a dark horse kind of controversial, uh, you know, contrarian opinion that he's some great lost artist. And I just didn't find that, you know, I think the, uh, if you're into ability, you know, greatest hits collection or in the dark would suffice. Yeah. Uh, I think you're good there. Um, you know, some of the live stuff's pretty entertaining. Uh, he's got a decent backing band. Um, even, you know, especially the weird, you know, Slim Jim Phantom alike bassist, who's actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, they're all pretty solid musicians and it's, it's entertaining, but I got to go. I'm really on the short side here. I think we're both in agreement. Yep. Okay. Yep. We're aligned on this and uh, you know, it is what it is. And, and, and again, Billy, uh, we're here for you. If you, if you want our help and we support you and uh, <laughs> love you nevertheless. So actually uh, I think he's doing pretty good. He sounds yeah. like he's got a happy content. Life, yeah, good, so good for him. Good for and, him. And, and kudos to him for uh, keeping central park clean and, uh, and maintaining that's true. And all that. It's a and keeping place. Ringo busy, you know? keeping Ringo Luth busy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> him and Luthiker, you know? Um, yeah, exactly. Anything that has to do with the Beatles, you know, Luthiker will just be there for a thousand percent, right. which is hard to, to blame him for. And obviously Luthiker is an amazing guitarist and we will get into Toto. Yeah, we're, we're gonna definitely going to hit Toto. Yeah. So, uh, and beyond. So anyway, that is uh, it for episode 31. I'm Jeff. That slip. Uh, we'll play you out with a little bit of the, uh, uh slips, uh, theme song here and and it's not playing with the boys it's this now everybody have you heard if you're in the game well, in the